0: It's well known that J.R.R. Tolkien was a Catholic and his faith influenced his writings. But how did his participation in the liturgy, liturgy in particular impact his writings and his imagination? That's what we're gonna talk about today on Crisis Point. Hello, I'm Eric Sam, your host, editor-in-chief of Crisis Magazine. Before we get started, I want to encourage people to smash that like button, to subscribe to the channel, follow us on social media, at CrisisMag, and also go to crisismagazine.com, and you can subscribe to our email newsletter where you'll get our articles to your inbox. Uh, two a day. Uh, one email, but two articles a day. Okay, so let's go ahead and get started. We have a returning guest, Dr. Ben Reinhart. He is an associate professor of English at Franciscan University of Stumbo. I actually think you might have been in Christendom when we interviewed you last time, but I can't remember now
1: when you sw- switched over recently, right? Yeah, so I came over in the fall of 22. So okay, right oh. when the Rings of Power was coming out, I, I moved over to Franciscan. Okay, right,
0: right. Okay, you followed the, the ring to the Franciscan <laughs> University of Steubenville.
1: So he teaches courses in medieval
0: literature, mythology, and Western literary tradition. He received his BA from Purdue University and PhD from the Medieval Institute, University of Notre Dame. Now, here's where he really is going to show his expertise. His articles have appeared in Myth Lore, Tolkien Studies, Anglo-Saxon England, and other, several other journals. He's written for Crisis, About the Rings of Power, uh, the awful Amazon series. That's my short description of it. Uh, And he he has a new translation of Beowulf uh, published by Clooney Press in 2022. And though, for what we're going to talk about, though, is he's also the instructor of a new course from the St. Paul Center, their Emmaus Academy on Tolkien's liturgical imagination. And when this came up that all of a sudden it was announced this, I was like, oh, my gosh, this. okay. now I'm going to get geeked out because I love Tolkien, love Lord of the Rings. I love being Catholic, love the liturgy. Ben's going to bring it all together here, so thanks for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. Okay, so uh, first thing I want to ask you, I might have even ask you on the last podcast for people who didn't watch or whatever, what got you to be a
1: Tolkien geek? (laughs)
0: What got you first interested in in Tolkien and that whole world?
1: Oh, boy. So I don't think we've talked about this. This is a fantastic question. I was in the seventh grade, I think, when I first discovered Tolkien, and it was it was sort of pure self discovery. I was reading a, an obnoxious amount of books. Um, I, I was a very unathletic and introverted kid, and I would usually read about a book a night. And so I was just sort of cycling through things, and I found, hey, here are these uh, here are these long books still hold me over for a while, and. So I read them first in seventh grade and then revisited them a couple times through high school. I was already pretty deep into that sort of nerd realm by the time I went off to college. Um, it was also then, you know, right as I was graduating high school, heading off to college, the movies came out and they sort of added fuel to the fire. Right. And it just sort of continued, continued from there. Um, I wasn't Catholic when I first read the books. I didn't convert until 2008. So. They were very much um, just fantasy novels to me when I first read them. But then as I grew older and I hope a little bit wiser and started to learn a little bit more, I started to see more and more connections. And that only deepened my attraction to Tolkien's art and to the world he made and my appreciation of the value of what he created. So.
0: Yeah. I, I, a little bit similar. I think I, I remember around seventh grade, I think it was for me too, mm-hmm. I think it was seventh grade. Yes, a friend like recommended them and so I read them, loved them. I wasn't, I mean, I was a little bit of a reader. I'm a bigger reader now than I actually was as a kid, but I really did. I mean, I just thought they were great. And back in my day, this was the 1980s, early 80s, mm-hmm. Dungeons and Dragons was a huge thing. Of course, yeah. And so I went, you know, super into that as well with, you know, some of my friends and stuff like that because, you know, obviously it's it's a similar. There's, there's connections there and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really did enjoy it. And so the movies then were much later for me um but then of course i got my kids into it and then Mm -hmm. got them to watch them and i feel like it's a right passage in our family with our seven kids like okay when do you when do i first i will read the hobbit to them and then typically they will read lord of the rings on their own i have Mm -hmm. not i don't think i've read i don't think i've read the whole lord of the rings in my kids because what happens is i read the hobbit to them they get so into it. they don't want to wait and like have wait each night for me to read to them like no i'm gonna just go ahead and jump into it in fact my 14-year-old, she just watched the movies for the first time a couple of months ago, I think it was, and just, you know, obviously loved them. Had, of course, they can't watch the movies until they read the books. I mean, of course, that's yeah. a, a clear rule. <laughs> um, but anyway, so, uh, okay, so we're both Tolkien geeks, is what we're trying to say, and mm-hmm. proud of it. Uh, I Like I said at the beginning, I think most people know, and I wasn't Catholic either, by the way, when I first read, i just loving this fantasy but like when you start seeing the Catholic connections, it's pretty cool. So most people know he's Catholic. But why don't you give us a quick kind of biography of him as a Catholic? Like, was he born Catholic? Was he, did he ever fall away? Did he convert? Like what, are, like, what are the basics of his Catholic faith?
1: Yeah, so he's not born Catholic, right? He's born in South Africa to Anglican parents. He moves when he's young from South Africa to England The goal is for his mother and young John Tolkien and his brother Hillary to go, and then for his father to follow them uh, when he puts his affairs in order in South Africa. It turns out that his father can't follow him um, because his father catches ill and dies. So Tolkien is left without a father from a very young age. After his father's death, his mother starts to explore Catholicism. His mother eventually converts. By this point, Tolkien, though, is this is a fantastic point that Holly Ordway's made in her new biography. He's too old to come in as a child convert. He's past the age of reason. So he has to be an adult convert himself and sort of be brought in. So he's not a cradle Catholic. In a true way, he's a convert, even though it's a child convert, right? And his family becomes attached to the Birmingham Oratory, right? His mother's looking around for good. Uh, a good church and good sort of spiritual uh, support because as a widow with an entirely Protestant family she needs good spiritual support she finds it in the Birmingham oratory and then they continue their association with the oratory his mother falls ill with falls ill with diabetes and dies leaving them orphans and leaves John Ronald Tolkien and his brother Hillary in the guardianship of Father Francis Morgan who's actually an oratorian priest so His final formative years are spent, he calls it, as a junior inmate of the Birmingham Oratory with a priest essentially as his father and the oratory life being central to who he is. So he and his brother wake up every morning. They serve mass, right? They go off to school. They do their school thing. But then they live in the environs of the oratory. And that's when Tolkien, at this stage in his life, falls deeply in love with the Blessed Sacrament, which is a love that he says never wavers, even though sometimes his practice of the faith becomes a little bit tepid. So that's the very short story.
0: And one of the things I didn't know until I, I watched your course, and by the way, I'll give a link, um, I'll put in the show notes, everything for people they can sign up for the Emmaus Academy and and take the course. It's a, I think 10, is it? Yeah, it's 10 uh, lessons, all about 20, 25 minutes, something like that, that goes through a lot of this stuff. So, I highly recommend. It. I've, I've done the whole series uh, and, and I loved it. But I never knew, I have a, a real devotion to St. John Henry Newman. I actually have this picture up on the wall right over here. You can't see it. And I was reading a, a biography, um, a two volume biography of John Henry Newman, when I started watching your course. And I did not realize the connection between J.R. Tolkien and John Henry Newman. Of course, the Birmingham Oratory is John Henry Newman's, that's his oratory, the one that he mm-hmm. founded, basically. And in fact, I, I believe the priest uh, who became his guardian, what was it, Father Morgan, is it? Yeah. Father Francis Morgan, he was basically at the Birmingham Oratory with John Henry Newman at the same yep. time. And they were they were there. I mean, obviously, he's much younger, but they were there at the same time. Uh, and I thought that was that—that uh, that was really, that was cool for me. And I'm, I'm excited about it also because I attend a parish that's run by oratorians. So mm-hmm. we hear about St. Neri all the time. We hear about John Henry Newman all the time. Um, and I think that, I don't think that, actually, I'm going to, I, I want to get to this, I'll get to this point in a second. So I, I'll, I'll halt there for, I, I have a thought though, about like how John Henry Newman might have impacted and, and the way Catholicism was practiced back then, how it impacted Tolkien. But anyway, so, so basically then he lived as a Catholic. Now, um, now, how was though, specifically what your, your focus is on this course is, is his, the liturgy. Right. So he lives as a Catholic, you know, he converted as a young age, he he lives Catholic, Um, uh, oratory obviously has some influence over him, but how did the liturgy, like, how is that part of his life beyond just, of course, he went to mass on Sunday?
1: All right. So I think I'm going to answer this question in about three ways. Okay. So first of all, if we talk about how it's part of his life, Tolkien was deeply formed And we'll call it active participation in the liturgy, right? He was an altar boy. He had that sort of deep altar boy's knowledge of how these things work. And then he's a daily Mass goer uh, for almost all of his life, right? He'd wake up early, go to Mass, take his kids to Mass almost every day. And the sort of suppressed thesis of the entire course is if you do that, it's going to leave a stamp on your imagination. If you actually care about these things. If you actually take the time and do this, this will leave a stamp on your imagination. I think this is probably even more true in Tolkien's day than it is in our own because of the, let uh, will say, the regularity of the one-year cycle of readings as opposed to the three-year cycle of readings with the more strict rubrics that would give uh, sort of more consistent, uh, <laughs> oh, just a more consistent liturgy, right? I, if you do that every day for 50 years, it's going to leave a mark. And this absolutely is what happens with Tolkien. So when you turn to his letters, you see how deeply his experience of the liturgy and his participation participation in the liturgy form him. He doesn't reference a whole lot of Catholic thinkers in his writing, right? He doesn't reference, like, he's not quoting Thomas Aquinas. He's not quoting Augustine. He's not even hardly ever referencing people like Newman, although we can believe that they did really impact him, right? The way that you see his Catholicism come to play most in his writings is he talks about, I was at mass and father said this, or he's writing to his son who's uh, stationed in World War II and says, if you can't get to mass, a really great thing for you to do is to recite the Roman canon, which you should know by heart, of course, right? To make in Latin, you, probably too Latin. right. Oh yeah, of course, in Latin, right? <laughs> to make a spiritual communion, he says the entire point of life is expressed in the Benedicite and the Gloria and Excelsis Deo, right? Those two prayers, which are both liturgical prayers, express the entire meaning of life. So this is how you see it, um, how you see it really impact him, and this is just one anecdote from the course, but I'm going to give it to because I think it really does illustrate. How deeply liturgical his imagination is, right? Uh, it's December. It's December in the 1960s. He's writing to a friend, Clyde Kilby, and he says, "Hey, this letter will reach you on or on or after Christmas." Luke's full about no. Uh, ful, the, the light has shined upon us, right? Luke's full about nobis, right? Um, and in this. Uh, In this letter, people have always sort of wondered, what's he quoting here? And Clyde Kilby talks to Tolkien's friends. He says, what does this Latin mean? It means the light has shined upon us. Where did he get it? They don't know. What he's doing here is he's quoting from memory, uh, from, you know, a year ago, one of the prayers for the Mass of the Shepherds at 8 o'clock in the morning on Christmas Day, right? He's got liturgical prayers memorized, not just the set ones but he's got them memorized through the year as well and that's where you just see how deeply this sort of seeps into his imagination right and then when he turns around and says the lord of the rings is a fundamentally religious and catholic work it's founded on catholicism was being founded in catholicism means well for tolkien it means the life of prayer of the church right that's where he gets his most important formation and so the argument is, if you want to understand how Catholicism works in Lord of the Rings, you've got to understand how the rhythms and the imaginative world of the liturgy works as well. There we go.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a key insight, I think, that I did not, I think when people think, okay, Catholic, how do they express it? I think they think of like, okay, C.S. Lewis expresses Christianity very clearly in, in the line, of "Which Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mm-hmm. And we all see it. I mean, it's, you know, and a kid can see it. And that's what he intended, but that's not mm-hmm. the case with J.R. Tolkien. Now, right. I want to get into that in a minute, but I want to get back to the fact that I, I, somewhat of an elephant in the room here, which is Tolkien was born in 1892, I believe, mm-hmm. and then he died in 1973, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Okay. So I actually overlap him a little bit. How about that? Um, so what that means is, is that he grew up with what we now call the traditional Latin Mass, mm-hmm. and that is what he experienced. So when we say liturgy, that's what he is living out, is the, the traditional liturgy, both in the, um, the, the, the Mass and in the office and, and all of that. Now, that also means, so since he died in 1973, he then experienced the, 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 all the changes that happened in the 1960s after Vatican II, Actually, they started, of course, in the liturgy in 1955, mm-hmm. and then the, the full Novus Ordo in 1970. What did Tolkien think about those changes?
1: The, the most simple way to to, uh, to describe it is he was deeply, deeply pained by the changes that happened, right? The great love of his life was our Lord in the Eucharist. The great love of his life was the Blessed Sacrament. That's what tethered him to the faith. And So the idea of showing due reverence to the Blessed Sacrament was central in his life. And already before any of the changes, you'll find him worrying about priests who don't celebrate in a dignified way, congregations who don't comport themselves appropriately. This is something that pains him in the 1950s, right? Um, And he's a good enough man, right? He's a good enough man that he actually takes small steps to help fix it. There's an anecdote from the 1950s where he's at Mass. He's sitting behind a sort of harried mother who has small children who are distracted and can't follow the Mass. And he leans over the pew and he helps them find their way through the Mass. And then he takes them to the uh, to the statue of Our Lady after Mass. And he prays with them and he t- tells them stories. So he wants there to be a deep reverence. He wants there to be, uh, yeah, he wants there to be a deep reverence. He wants there to be a worthy honor shown to our Lord in the liturgy, right? Now that was, that's Tolkien in 1960, right? When the changes come, they become very, very deeply painful for him. As he writes to his son, the church, which once felt like a refuge now feels often feels like a trap, but there's nowhere else to go. So uh, it is a curious time. You know, apparently he had a habit for years of making all the responses in Latin when everybody else was making them in English. Right. Um, There are stories of him. At some Reformed liturgy, and it's not clear if this is after the Mass is introduced in English, which happens in the mid-60s, or if it's after the Novus Ordo, but at some new liturgy, which featured not just English, but also a diminution of genuflection, so less genuflection, Tolkien apparently storms out of Mass, genuflects, and just leaves because he can't handle the lack of reverence. Um, That being said, for all the pain that he experienced, he remained loyal, right? He says loyalty is only a virtue when it's tested. So he doesn't stop attending mass, uh, and her new spiritual, uh, biography of Tolkien, Holly Ordway points out that he would even in the last couple of years of his life, occasionally serve as a lector at the new mass. So he never stops attending, even though it's very, very deeply painful for him.
0: Yeah. And I can, I mean, I can just understand that from on, a just anybody if this is how if this is that much of their life and they, mm-hmm. they their entire life is basically kind of lived in these rhythms and these ways and he knows it and he of course even more so because he understand i mean like like you know i've attended latin mass myself for about 12 13 years now and i'm not i'm a terrible language person i barely can do english and uh and so latin to me has always been a, a struggle um mm-hmm. but like after 12 years i can kind of now when we say the creed i don't look over at the english anymore but Mm -hmm. for somebody like tolkien who i mean clearly language is what what, one of his things i can see how that just be so jarring if nothing else and and so Mm -hmm. difficult for him now yeah yeah, i mean i'm gonna ask a real controversial question you can pun on it that's fine but that's what we're here for i feel like okay i'm gonna stress my opinion ask what you think about it and Mm -hmm. that is I feel like Tolkien could only have a Tolkien, somebody like a Tolkien, could have only developed in that atmosphere he was in, in which mm. there's this beauty and, and, and the liturgy is irreverent, and there's all this, uh, like, I, I was reading, because I, I, I was reading um, uh, the, the Orway's book about, about you know, about how they built a brand new church when he was mm. young around mm. the old church, which was basically just thrown up to have something, Right. Remember, this is England. They're not exactly mm-hmm. a Catholic country, especially right. at this time. And and so. And how beautiful it was. And like, this is what he's seeing. He's serving at masses for this. He's seeing all these beautiful liturgical things. And and of course, and in the oratory, St. John Henry Newman particularly encouraged the arts and beauty mm-hmm. and the arts and music and writing and all of that. And I just wonder, can we produce a token today in like a typical parish in which. Things are—I don't even want to say typical, but let's just say a parish where things are haphazard. They're not Mm -hmm. really that reverent. I mean, do you think there's something to what I'm saying, or or
1: or not? (laughs) So, uh, the short answer is, yeah, I think there's something to what you're saying, right? Tolkien is really sort of—he really is sort of a -a one-of-a-kind figure. He has all sorts of advantages that would be that would be impossible to recapture for most people today, right? You right. can think about his education. We can think about the language learning that he had from you know, basically the age of reason on up. You've got a guy who taught himself Gothic when almost nobody in the world studies Gothic. He did it when he was in his teens, right? I mean, you've got his natural genius, you've got his education, and then you have... I'll say two other things, right? You've got, he had, he's one of the last people to have a living connection to a quasi pre-industrialized life too, right? Growing up in the countryside, he's got his memories of the sort of idyllic English un industrialized countryside. And then you've got his experience in the liturgy, right? Which is also very hard to replicate. And if you believe, as Tolkien says, that all of his ideas of beauty and majesty and all of his ideas of all the little things he know ha- has come from the church it would be hard to recapture that in 2023 and ev- across each one of these points it'd be hard to get somebody who had the learning it'd be hard to have somebody who had the formation it'd be hard to have somebody who had the liturgical experience so i think that's probably true yeah, yeah. Um,
0: okay, so let's go into now specifically. How did Tolkien's uh, connection to the liturgy? How did it form his imagination, and therefore form his writings? Now, mm-hmm. one of the things that you bring up in the course that I want you to explain here a little bit is the connection to fairy. And I, how's that spell? F A E R I E. When yeah. you first said it, I was like, "What word is he saying?" I wasn't quite sure because, like, you know, there's like a fairy that goes across a river and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. Fairy godmother and things like that. Could mm-hmm. you explain a little bit? What Tolkien means by that, and why
1: is that important for understanding Tolkien's uh, liturgical imagination? So, this is probably the most important point in the entire course. So, if we can get this one down, uh, we'll be in a pretty good place. The place to start is Tolkien's essay on fairy stories, which is where he lays out his entire theory of how fantasy works, right? Fairy is just another word for fantasy or the fairy story or whatever else, right? It can talk. It can talk about the inhabitants there. It can talk about the realm where the fairy, the fairies, the elves live. Or it can talk about this thing that we do when we create, uh, create fantasy. And Tolkien's really, really clear that when people are making fantasy, they are not doing something that is itself didactic. They're not doing something that is catechetical, right? It's not a simple act of... Um, A simple act of religious education in a way that sort of the Chronicles of Narnia can sometimes be. But what he does say is that the fairy story can help you recapture the wonder of things. And something that's really, really funny in his essay on fairy stories. Three times he says the realm of fantasy contains all sorts of things. It contains the sun and the moon and trees and forests and But every time he gives one of these lists, he says, and it includes bread and wine, includes bread and wine, includes bread and wine. And, oh, heck, let's dive into the weeds, okay? (laughs) Tolkien is basing a lot of his theory on fairy stories, on Christopher Dawson, another English Catholic convert, on his 1928 book, Progress in Religion. And in this book, Dawson talks about how the how the instinct to worship comes from a sense of natural sacredness that we find as human beings going through nature, okay? So we recognize there's this sort of sense of wonder or awe or the numinous, right? And our instinct to worship comes from the recognition that there's something marvelous about creation, all right? Tolkien roots fantasy. He roots the fairy tale making thing in this idea. If you're making a fairy tale, you recognize that there's something amazing about what? About silver and gold or about a tree or about the sun, the moon, whatever. And you're responding to the natural sacredness of creation, which is the same instinct that prompts worship. First point, right? Second point is that the liturgy both presupposes that natural sense of the sacred and responds to it, right? Why did Christ take bread and wine in his hands at the Last Supper, right? Why is it bread and wine as opposed to anything else he could have taken? C.S. Lewis says it's because bread and wine have always been sort of recognized as the body and blood of the dying and living God. There's something naturally symbolic about bread and wine. So, Tolkien says that fairy story is playing around with this idea of natural sacredness or natural symbolism, the same sense that the liturgy relies on. Does that that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So, and this is why you can just sort of feel at home in Tolkien's world because he lives in a world where things matter. He lives in a world where things that become humdrum because we use them every day, you can see them and they can become enchanted and they can become powerful again so that's one way that these two things intersect that fairy fairy stories fantasy draws on the same well that that the liturgy draws on which is natural significance natural sacredness that's the first point the second point is that just as they draw on the same well the liturgy and the fairy story are supposed to take us to the same end. And this is way, a way that the fairy story is actually de- derivative of the gospel, okay? Tolkien invents a new word to talk about fairy tale happy endings. The new word is eucatastrophe, which is the sudden overthrow, the sudden joyous overthrow, where, oh, you think the princess is dead, but the kiss brings her back to life, where you think everything's lost, and at the last moment, there's redemption, right? The joy of the fairy tale, Tolkien says, is actually the joy of the Gloria. The Gloria in Excelsis Deo, right? The Gloria in Excelsis Deo is for Tolkien the fundamental language of the universe. The Gloria in Excelsis Deo is what the whole created universe actually means. And we usually don't see this because we're walking around daily life and we don't see it, we don't feel it. But sometimes you can sort of pierce through the veil and you can see that this is what God created the universe to be. And this is the way that things really work in heaven, right? And so the fairy story, because it can recapture and it can present that marvelous deliverance, right? Draws on that joy, even when it's a purely secular or it's a purely just nursery story fairy tale, that joy of deliverance, that joy of uh, sort of the rapture of, of the happy ending, right, is ultimately... Derived from and points back to the Gloria. So that's where fairy stories both come from and lead to the liturgy. Yeah. That was a lot to say in five minutes.
0: No, that was very good. I mean, it's important. Like, okay, so one of the things I took away from the course, this is like this is kind of a radical takeaway for me. So traditionally, I I most of the books I read are nonfiction. I read Mm -hmm. theology books. I read history books, you know, things like that. And sometimes I I read some fiction. I used to read more when I was younger, but I don't read very much of it. And my brain considered them very different in -hmm. that when I read a a nonfiction book, I was very much like, okay, I'm learning something. I'm growing as a person. I'm, you know, all these things, positive things. I looked at reading fiction as, okay, it just is something almost like watching television or just being brain dead, you know, just something to do to relax, which it is on some level. Mm-hmm. What I will say, because, because what I'm doing is, is that I'm actually planning on, uh, I'm started rereading. I had my, my Lord of the Rings, my Tolkien illustrated version here. It's I'm, I'm geeked up. I know you appreciate it. So I want audience to see it as well. I'm starting You can tell them right at the beginning right now. Um, Gandalf just told Frodo to keep it safe, keep it secret. Um, but what I, what happened is because of taking your course, I'm now reading it and I admit my whole mentality is a little different because I'm reading it now, not in the sense of like, Oh, I'm learning something. This is catechetical. No, no more. Just like, okay, this, this is, a, this is a way of, I can't explain as well as you can, but like this is a way of like understanding the world. This is, mm-hmm. uh, this is as valuable, maybe more valuable in some ways as a, uh, uh, an important nonfiction book that teaches you, maybe a theology book, for example. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's not like just a throwaway recreation. It actually, now of course, there's a lot of nonfiction that I mean, I'm sorry, fiction that's just crap and doesn't. <laughs> help. But like this, reading this actually can help form the way I look at things in this world and how I live. And I and so I want to thank you first of all because I'm I'm. It's a whole. I can already tell, like just starting it. Mm-hmm. Like, I have a whole different mentality, and I've read Lord of the Rings I don't know, maybe half a dozen times in my life, probably more. Um, and so it, it just it's a whole different thing. So, and I think it has to do with what you were just saying about fairy, about how it you know shows us something about our world, mm-hmm. even though it's talking about an, another world, so to speak. So, um, anyway, I just wanted to, to, to bring that up. Um, now, one of the things though. About, about lord of the rings in particular i remember when the movies mm-hmm. came out oh what's the guy who played gandalf uh ian something um McKellen. McKellen. Yeah. yes thank you who is an excellent actor by the way i mean he's just yeah. phenomenal as an actor when he's an atheist i think he's you know homosexual or something like that and i remember him in an interview he said something about way one of the things he liked was there's no religion there's no mm-hmm. god there's no like you know all this stuff in in the in the books and so what, that he liked that about that and of course a lot of catholics cried foul a lot of christians cried foul but why is that it is i mean we we go from chronicles of narnia to mm-hmm. which is so explicit to spoiler aslan is jesus um to um lord of the rings i do think it's it's legitimate that there might be a little bit of a jarring impact of like well you don't see frodo ever going to church or you don't see any talk about God or anything really about that so what
1: what's going on here that's a fantastic question and it's probably the single most confusing question that we can ask about Tolkien his works and religion because Tolkien will give massively contradictory answers to the presence of religion in his imaginary world so at times he'll say things like, well, I have not put in or I've cut out practically all references to anything like religion. At other times he said he complains that people aren't paying attention because if they paid enough attention, they would see that religious acts do happen even in Lord of the Rings. Or he'll say, no, I've absorbed all the religious element into the symbolism of the story itself. And that's where you find it. So Tolkien points this way and he points that way. And you can't sort of proof text it and say, aha, Tolkien said, therefore it it is or it isn't because it, you just don't find it there. Um, the bigger answer is there are relatively few overt references to religion in the Lord of the Rings, right? You could say that when the elves invoke um, Elbreath, they sing "Oh Elbreath, Gilthoniel," right? That that is a prayer. And in fact, it is. It's, it, they pray to this angel and the way that we would pray to an angel or a saint. So that is in fact a religious act, right? Um, Beyond that, you're really hard pressed to find direct references to religion in um, Lord of the Rings itself. The closest religious ceremony comes in the two towers. It's when Frodo and Sam are with Faramir and they pause before their meal to gaze west, and they gaze west towards Numenor, which was, which is where Aragorn and his people come from. That island sank. It's gone. They gaze beyond it towards Elvenhome, which is where the elves have their natural home is, and beyond that, they gaze in thanksgiving towards that, which is beyond Elvenhome and shall ever be, okay? So they do have this little act of grace or act of sort of thanksgiving, but it's really subtle, you blink and you miss it. But that's all that Tolkien gives you directly in The Lord of the Rings. Now, in his other books, he makes it very clear. He has a monotheistic universe. There's God. There's the devil. God created everything. And a whole part of the meaning of life is giving due honor to God. Elsewhere, he says, uh, the whole conflict in The war Lord of the Rings is not ultimately about freedom. It's about God and his soul, and his soul right to divine honor. That's what Lord of the Rings, The War of the Ring, everything is about giving God his due honor and not giving it to a creature. So all that is to say, it's there, but it's suppressed. And this is where I think that Tolkien's real genius comes in, right? Because first of all, it'd be bad fantasy writing if you would just stop and have people directly invoking God all the time, because that would sort of, um, it would introduce something that you and I take as something really real and not to be trifled with into a realm of fairy story. So that that would create a real challenge for religious readers because we don't want that in fairy story because we don't want God to be made the subject of fairy story, right? First thing, it would also be a problem for non-religious readers because non-religious readers would tune out at that point. So Tolkien instead creates a world that's more sort of implicitly religious than explicitly religious and that's why In some ways, I think he's such a great evangelistic tool, right? Because people don't put their guards up when they're reading Tolkien, right? You read Lewis, you put your shields up, you filter out the Christian stuff if you don't like the Christian stuff, and then you're left with whatever you're left with. Tolkien operates on a much more subtle and a much more, I think, ultimately powerful level because he doesn't do that in the same way. So Ian McKellen can be playing Gandalf, who is an angel and an angel who is particularly attached to the Holy Spirit. Ian McKellen has no idea that this is happening, but he's still doing it, right? And so as a sort of an imaginative imaginative catechesis, it can work even on people who don't know that it's working on them.
0: Yeah, and I know people who have, said that like lord of the rings they read as like an atheist or something like that and they do kind of credit it as some one of the factors that end up leading them to catholicism not like in this explicit way but definitely like you said it starts to form their their own imagination starts to form their own way of looking and i will say in silmarillion which i did not read till later in life which i unfortunately the creation account in there is mm-hmm. just so beautiful i mean it Boy, just it's, it's right at the beginning of it i, I recommend people read that how basically god i can't remember the name he gives to god but you know he 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 sings creation and it will, the angels join him and all and then how melkor i think it is the 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 yep. sa- satan basically starts singing his own tune i just i mean it really is just a beautiful um scene there of course but that's in silmarillion not lord of the rings so right. you wouldn't know any of that of course if you just read lord of the rings mm-hmm. um and, and another thing is i i think I lost my train of thought here but it had something to do with this so okay so i'll just skip then i'll come back to it one of the things that you you have a whole one of your classes is on the liturgical calendar mm-hmm. in in his mythology and so obviously as somebody who lived out the the the, the liturgical calendar you said it was a one-year cycle back then mm-hmm. and he and he knew this i mean he was quoting uh things from the liturgy from a year before because he knew it was coming And Mm -hmm. all of that, how is that liturgical calendar then seen in the uh the the Lord of the Rings and his other mythology?
1: So, there are lots of small ways, and one I think really, really, or a couple really, really big ways that it comes up. There are small ways that people have, have noticed before, you know. Um, Frodo wakes up in Rivendell on the feast of Saint Raphael in the old calendar, right? So, the feast of the healing archangel. Is that merely coincidental? Maybe, but but maybe not, right? But the two really huge ones are the fellowship leaves from Rivendell on December the 25th, okay? So they leave on Christmas Day and then the ring is destroyed on March 25th, which, which is, of course, the date of the Annunciation, but it's also the date of the crucifixion, right? So the ring's finally destroyed and the power of Satan effectively broken, on the day that Christ died and did this. And then we have a whole sort of like Paschal Easter into ascension period after the rings destroyed with the celebration and all of that. Those two dates, the 25th of March, the 25th of December, Tolkien says at one point, they were completely accidentally chosen probably not. At another point, he says they were deliberately chosen. Uh, It seems much more likely (laughs) that they are deliberately chosen because you can't do that by accident, right? And so there's this whole sort of incarnational, right, liturgical pattern moving from Christmas, where our redemption sort of begins, but it begins with Christ in the major, It begins timidly. And then there's the flight into Egypt and the exodus and sort of, all this imagery right and then you move through this lenten period right because frodo's journey through mordor is very much a lenten journey of dust and ashes and mortification the final destruction on march 25th and then the celebration after so in the course i argue that all this can be patterned not just in the sort of macro way like hey birth of christ passion of christ but even in a micro way, if you look at the prayers, say, associated with the feast of the Ascension, there are strong overlaps with Aragorn's coronation. If you look at, um, if you look at the imagery used when Frodo and Sam wake up, and you've got this resurrection moment, it can be paired very closely with things that you see in Easter liturgy. And that's how this all works with the patterning in Lord of the Rings.
0: Can we? Add, I want to ask specifically about Aragorn, the the, the return of the king and it's ascension mm-hmm. uh connection so how exactly is um because you, you you have a um one of the course one of the classes in your course is called the paschal patterns in return of the king i don't want to give away the mm-hmm. whole thing but just on a, on a high level what are those um th- those paschal patterns
1: all right so if we think about the whole mystery of christ right it's his incarnation it's his passion his death his resurrection and his ascension that completes the whole mystery right so for lord of the rings we don't have things absolutely complete until we have the coronation of aragorn which brings everything to its natural conclusion from the patristics right on down through uh right on down through the 20th century you'll find the court sorry the ascension is the coronation feast of crisis when god ascends his throne to shouts of joy right and you see all those patterns he enters the gates, the princes welcome him, he judges the nations. All these things you find in the Ascension liturgies, right, and all these things you find with Aragorn going up at the end. It doesn't make him an allegory of Christ, but it just means that our climax of Lord of the Rings and our sort of joyous triumph at the end, just as it's patterned on incarnation, passion, death, resurrection, it brings in the Ascension element too to bring it all to its conclusion.
0: So I, I I should ask this earlier, but I, I kind of make this my final major question, and that is something you just said, which is it's also well known that uh, Tolkien said he hated allegory, and yet mm-hmm. you are saying oh, there's these connections between you know the the dates and in Christian dates and and then the 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 ascension and, and Aragorn's ascension in the, as the king and stuff like that. Give us a why that is. Why that is not allegory but it is still connected uh what is the difference right. because we we know that like again we we, we keep referencing chronicles of narnia which is an allegory and
1: very clear
0: why is this not allegory but yet it is connected in some way
1: mm-hmm. so first of all i mean allegory is such a messy term right w- what does allegory mean is it so I'm going to just bracket that entire question, right? Because Tolkien can give contradictory answers on that too. But he maybe did that just is, to bother future scholars of his. He's like, you know, I I'm going to be a big
0: deal. People are going to be studying me in future years. I'm just going to start saying things
1: contradictory just to give them work to do in the future. No, well, and I, that, that could very well be. But um, but look, right, Aragorn doesn't mean Jesus. Aragorn means Aragorn. Frodo doesn't mean Jesus. Gandalf doesn't mean Jesus, even though elements of their stories mirror elements of Christ of Christ, uh, Christ's life. I think there are three different ways that we could look at the question of the religious influence on Tolkien's imagination from sort of the minimalist to the maximalist, okay? The minimalist version would go like this. Hey, Tolkien's a daily mass goer. Tolkien... Um, as a Daily Mascower will, will pick up certain associations, images will inevitably work their way into his work. And it's just sort of something that happens on the way. Even on that level, you can understand Tolkien better if you understand what he's um what his, his religious formation is, right? We could kick it up another notch where we say, the Lord of the Rings is founded on Catholicism, right? If we go back to the very famous quote, he's writing to a friend who noted that Galadriel sort of seems to be drawn in the colors and the lines of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And he says, well, of course, all my images of beauty and its nobility and its simplicity are founded on the Blessed Virgin. And the Lord of the Rings is itself a fundamentally Catholic and religious work, right? So all of my ideas of beauty are founded on Our Lady and the Lord of the Rings is... Founded on Catholicism. So we could we could move it a step further and say, well, if nothing else, right? Tolkien tells us that just like just like Galadriel grows out of Mary, so too the Lord of the Rings grows out of his practice of the faith. It's founded on, it's rooted in, and it blossoms out of that. So that's the next stage forward, where it's a more sort of conscious working out of these images. But I think there's a third layer that probably works too. Um, Tolkien conceives of Lord of the Rings as something that actually happened, right? Part of the, the sort of mythic story is this actually happened at a stage in the history of our world sometime after the fall, but probably before the flood. You know, this actually did happen. And the God in that world is just the God in this world. And Middle Earth is just our Earth, blah, 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 blah right? And if this, this actually did happen historically, I think the third thing that we could do is say, there might be some justification. I'd suggest avoiding an allegorical reading, like a strictly allegorical reading, but maybe you could do something more fluid and you could do a figural reading, right? Where it's not that Aragorn is an allegory of Christ, but in some ways, If Tolkien's imagining him as a historical figure, might he, like Cyrus, prefigure Christ in some way or be allowed to point to or draw the attentive readers to? And I think that's probably a fair comparison, right? Because after all, if we want to bring it back to the idea of liturgy, the liturgy itself operates all the time on this figural level, right? We're called, we call the sacrifice of Abraham. the sacrifice of Melchizedek, the sacrifice of Abel to our minds, not because they're just allegories of Christ's sacrifice, but because they point to it. And I think at sort of the fullest level, we could allow that Lord of the Rings might be intended to sort of point to or gesture in the direction of truths of the faith, even though it's not a simple allegory of those things.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, as Catholics, we we should believe that the liturgy really forms us as people. Mm-hmm. I mean, as a as a Catholic, I mean, that is all the books you read and all that are 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 helpful, maybe, or interesting, but ultimately it's the liturgy that's the most important thing. It's the reason we have liturgy wars is because we know it's so important. <laughs> I mean, we wouldn't fight over something that doesn't matter. And right. so what you're kind of what you realize is is that, which I think is I have not seen anybody else talk about this as much, is that when we talk about Tolkien's Catholic, we have to talk about him as a liturgical Catholic, living the liturgy, and that just, yeah. just seeps into his the deepest part of who he is. So when he writes something, of course it's going to come out. Not that he's like saying, "Okay, I want to make Aragorn a Christ figure, or I want to tie this into the Ascension." The Ascension is literally in his head, just mm-hmm. like bouncing around there. So when he thinks of a king going to glory and being uh, a coronation. That's just what's in his head is this idea yep. this these images of and it would be completely different if he grew up for example Muslim or, or yep. atheist or something like that. so I think that's kind of ties it all together so I, I gotta ask you now
1: are you gonna write a book on this because you should <laughs> I, I'm working on turning the course into a book yeah so uh, the Thanks hope would be to have this book uh, to have this book come out. Late in this year or early next would probably be the publication date. So I'm working on that. Um, Another fun thing, if I can just make a self-serving plug, there's the Emmaus Academy course, which everyone should, everyone should go use their free trial of Emmaus Academy and go there. But Franciscan is actually letting me do a course on Tolkien's imagination in gaming Austria this summer. So if there's any... Hmm. uh, college students not Franciscan who are listening to this, or if there are um, late high school students who might be moving towards college, this is open to non-Franciscan students too. So if anyone's interested, we're gonna be doing a course on Tolkien's imagination in the Alps or the foothills of the Alps in Goming, Austria. So this oh. is gonna be something that I get to play around with for a long time, yeah.
0: Oh, that that's exciting. I mean, uh, maybe at some point you think you might teach it also at Franciscan at, at the studentville campus or- Oh, that, just... that'd
1: be amazing. That'd be amazing. Yeah.
0: You, you would have that thing would sell out that would be like filled up within like seconds i imagine because i think isn't it like seniors they they can get their their choice of courses first and then juniors yeah. like that
1: okay, yeah so, so that, it, that'd probably okay. be a largely senior course yeah
0: yeah right exactly you got to figure out a way to get this in spring of 2025 because my son will be a second semester senior then and i'll tell him you got to jump into that um but okay so a book will be I recommend people definitely take the course itself. It's like, it's not really super long. No, it's huh? um like 10 courses and I'm looking at the list. There's all about 20, 25 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a little quiz afterwards, which I actually liked. They usually skip those, but I liked it because knowing it was there, I was like, okay, I, I don't know about you, but I can zone out when I'm listening to something online. People are probably zoning out to us right now. <laughs> and, and so like having that, like the, kind of be like, okay, you know, have that know, like, okay, I gotta remember this stuff. It, it actually helps me then remember it had a bigger impact. So I will put a link to it. Like you said, I think there is a free trial you can get, I don't know if seven days yep. or something like that. If um, Mayus Academy has a lot of other great courses too. I mean, that's, that's just one of them um, that, that I think are great. So I'll put that in there. Um, and like I said, your book about it, hopefully will come out in the next year. or So if you can make it the Gaming Austria this summer, do that. Sign up for that. So lots of good uh, token stuff. And, and then my final question is, are you going to watch
1: uh, Rings of Power season two? Uh, you know so what? The rest of us don't have to. Got it, but somebody's got to do it. So, yeah, I mean, everything coming out of Amazon Studios sounds like it's going to take the dumpster fire of season one and then throw some gasoline on it. But you know what? <laughs> Let's not prejudge. Who, who knows? It's
0: we We're know, counting on you. <laughs> at least watch some of it so you can tell us whether or not we should bother to watch it because most of us are probably just assuming i never watched the first season um because i heard so much and particularly from you um but then from others as well so you you you're required to take one for the team is what i'm saying i'll,
1: I'll take it for the team yeah so <laughs> i don't know when they're planning on coming out with it but it will be i think it was this year i
0: thought i heard it was this later this year
1: and then they, they've got an anime coming out too about so it, it, that's gonna be terrible it's gonna be. It's gonna be interesting. <laughs> yeah.
0: Exactly. Okay, Ben. Thank you very much uh, for doing this. Uh, like I said, encourage people to watch it. Read your Tolkien as well. Um, if you haven't read Lord of the Rings in a while, like in the last month, read it again, uh, and and you'll enjoy it even more. So, okay. Thank you very much, Ben. Thank you so much, Eric. Okay. Until next time. Right, bye. God love you.